I've always been proud to say that I was born and grew up in the farming and ranching business, which I, I was. I stay very active in that business and have set it up so that future generations of my family can afford to also be in the business going forward. As a student, I've always, uh, in college, I always had a commitment to Western culture, Western art, particularly Western history. As an adult, I've spent my business career working on companies and in industries that have always been firmly rooted in the West, often companies that are quite historic in nature and have been in the West for many, many years. Welcome to the Rainmakers Podcast. This show is going to be an exploration on the world's best investors from past and present to see how exactly they made their returns. In this episode, we will go over two deals that will help us learn from the methods of Philip Anschutz. This is going to be a very fun and very informative episode. If you guys like these episodes, please subscribe and leave a review. Now let's learn from some of the deals that Philip Anschutz has made. In the last episode, we learned about why Philip Anschutz was someone worth studying. He became a self-made billionaire through being an aggressive investor who took advantage of hidden opportunities. Before we move on to the first deal of this episode, I want to refresh ourselves on where Philip Anschutz was at this point in his career. He already sold Southern Pacific to Union Pacific for $5.4 billion and was on his way with his new venture, Quest, to take over the telecom industry. But we know from the last episode, Andrews did not like to concentrate all his investments in one opportunity. So he was still investing in other industries like oil and mining, but still had his head on finding another big opportunity to parlay his other assets into. I detailed this a lot in the last episode. He always finds a hidden opportunity to take advantage of. So just so you understand the way Anschutz thinks, let's go back to his mentality from his early deals because after studying him, I will tell you his style has always been constant from the beginning. So if I say the name Philip Anschutz after you listen to these two episodes, I only want you to remember two words to go with his name. Aggressive and knowledgeable. Aggressive and knowledgeable. Keep it in your head as we go through this episode and keep it in your head in general whenever you think of this guy and his investing. Anschutz knew this about himself. Like I said in the first episode, he really studied the industries that he lived around. In the West, he knew who all the pioneers were, what business moves they made. He read all about their careers and he used that as an advantage to his own investing. After successfully utilizing these two qualities, being aggressive and knowledgeable, twice in his investments in oil early on and then later with his railroad investments he only became more aggressive in this episode we will see how Anschutz's aggressiveness allowed him to be the big player in two totally different industries than he invested in before just by buying into deals much quicker than his competitors and keep in mind him being knowledgeable also changed before it was his studies of people in the west but now it was actually learning from the deals he made. Remember, he was very diversified, right? So he used his knowledge from investing in different businesses to find ways to find new hidden assets like he did with the railroads and telecom. 
This will be another feature in the deals we talk about in today's episode. By being a generalist and investing in many different industries, he developed a variant perception that others couldn't understand. Being in all these industries allowed him to make connections that other people in the industry, like specialists, would not be able to see. This allowed him to pioneer new ways to do business in industries and transform assets that were once viewed as expenses. So when we get into these deals, keep in the back of your head how Anschutz's aggressiveness and his knowledge helped him immensely before and try to apply that with what I tell you of how he does it with these deals in today's episode. Let's now jump right into the first deal of this episode, Anschutz Entertainment Group, or AEG for short. Now, I want you to close your eyes, but if you're driving, obviously don't close your eyes, but just imagine. It's the mid-1990s, and you are Philip Anschutz. You just hired Ed Moyers, the train executive at Illinois Central, to fix the company you have bought seven years earlier with none of your own money. You're still stressing over the investment because while you thought it can be fixed with better operations relatively quickly, you realize that this company was a lot more broken than you thought. Morale is at an all-time low and each manager you put in charge can't stop the bleeding. You're forced to sell some of the real estate that Southern Pacific owns to pay off the debt you used to make the acquisition. You are now getting a bunch of calls on pieces of land. You try to hear each person out and what they offer for the pieces they inquire about. And one day, a man named Tim Lywicky calls about the acres of land you own in downtown Denver. What does he want to use it for? To build a new arena for the Denver Nuggets. The owners of the Nuggets hired Lywicky to fix the team after he had previously done it with the Timberwolves before. Lywicky is an entrepreneur and pioneers a whole new model to not only help struggling teams become profitable, he comes up with a unique way to create new state-of-the-art arenas without using subsidies from the city. Early on in the United States, sports teams convinced cities to foot the whole bill in creating arenas because owners argued it brought a lot of value to the city. In reality, cities realized how costly these buildings were and saw that all the value would be captured by the owners who would lease the arenas for little to nothing while raking in all the profit from ticket sales. Seeing a new way to make such a cash-intensive investment work intrigues you. Because remember, we're Phil Banshee's right now. So what is this new model, you ask Lywicky? He then explains to you how he did it with the Timberwolves. He gets a loan to start a new arena in downtown Minneapolis and asks the city for a parcel of their land to use for the arena. He then goes before they start construction and sells the naming rights for the arena, a new idea at this point in time, to Target. He then creates the plan for sponsored seating and sells those off too. He sells off luxury suites to corporate partners as well. By the time Laiwiki puts the deals together, he would be able to pay off the entire arena before it goes up. He wants to do it again before the Nuggets. And for that to work, he thinks you have the land to make it happen. Seeing all this, you agree to sell off part of the land to the Nuggets but want to keep a stake in the arena. But that's not all. Remember, you're Philip Anshu. You want some hidden asset as well. You see that the owners of the Nuggets are also the owners of the Denver Avalanche hockey team. Seeing as they only value the Nuggets, you throw in that you will only do this deal if you get 50% of the hockey team. They accept, and now you're off running. Time goes on though. Liwiki is about to unveil the plans publicly for the now new Pepsi Center using your land in Denver. You catch wind that the owners of the Nuggets now think they struck gold with Liwiki in building this new arena and feel like they do not need to honor the agreement with you of giving you 50% of the team because you will want to be part of this new money machine with the arena. 
They tell Laiwuki to talk to you and say the deal with the hockey team is off. And now you're angry. They don't understand that you have the thing that they need most to get this whole deal done. You have the land. So you tell Laiwuki you're taking the whole deal off the table. This becomes a huge death blow not only to the Nuggets, but to Laiwuki as well. He just gave a presentation to the public announcing the arena, and five days later, after working himself to the bone to make this arena happen, the deal is dead. Laiwiki then calls for a press conference and quits on the spot after going through all the trouble to get this arena done for nothing. Little does Laiwiki know, the day of this press conference where he quits will change entertainment history. This will give us the needed background of what started Anschutz Investments that formed AEG. Now I am going to move on to how Anschutz Investments formed AEG and why he was so successful with these investments. Let's go back to episode 1 of this series. Remember, Anschutz placed two traits on why he was so successful. This is going to sound repetitive, but this is just the most important reasons why Anschutz was so successful with this. He was successful because obviously he was aggressive and knowledgeable. In this moment in time, Anschutz was just trying to make use of the real estate assets Southern Pacific had. After seeing this new model of financing arenas by Tim Laiwiki, Anschutz took the information and jumped on the opportunity to apply it. He knew he could get a better deal himself if he just bought a team, but Anschutz did not want to pay market price for a team. Remember, he found creative ways to get into deals without paying top dollar. He used his original $90 million in equity to eventually have full ownership of the Southern Pacific, but just like with Rainwater, the free-flowing junk bond market of the 80s became a now slumping industry, where getting debt to make any acquisition was now very difficult. So just like Rainwater, Anschutz would now buy companies with busted balance sheets from this craze and would take advantage by buying businesses that made money but just took on too much debt. Anschutz did not have to wait long to find its opportunity. Once he backed out the deal to finance an arena in Denver, Anschutz got wind that the LA Kings were going bankrupt. I was under the assumption that the Buzz family had owned the LA Kings this whole time. But after finding out that the Kings went bankrupt and why, I have to tell you guys this crazy story. So Jerry Buss buys the Kings, the Lakers, and the Forum from Jack Kent Cook for $67.5 million in 1979, which was a record price back then. Jerry Buss mainly cared about the Lakers. The Forum and the Kings was just an afterthought in the deal. So in 1986, a man named Bruce McNall buys 25% of the team, and then by 1988 gets full ownership from Jerry Buss after buying the remaining shares from him. This is where the story takes a crazy turn. This Bruce McNall guy walks into buying the team with nobody doing any sort of due diligence on him whatsoever. When people like Jerry Buss asked him where he made his money, his backstory was that he sold ancient coins and was a dealer. This is how he made his millions of dollars apparently, and people seemed to buy it. And this is not even the worst of the matter. For some reason, people back then just believed him. He would end up getting the money to buy the Kings after convincing banks to give him a loan to buy the team out. Jerry Buss got the money so he didn't seem to care. McNall would keep going along with this grift, but at the same time, he really did care to make the Kings a standout fixture in LA. Hockey in LA was not working for obvious reasons, but McNall would fix this by changing the jersey colors from yellow and purple to black and purple, and then shocking the world by trading for the GOAT of hockey, Wayne Gretzky. This works out well for McNall and the Kings. They start selling out games, and lots of celebrities end up becoming regulars. The owners take notice of what McNall is doing, and become so impressed with him that, they, that he ends up becoming the commissioner of the league. 
Again, nobody did any background checks or thought anything was wrong with him. He becomes the commissioner of the league and helps the NHL get two more expansion teams, with one of them being the Anaheim Ducks. Because the Ducks are in the same region, he would pocket $25 million from the franchise fee, but would use that to pay off the debts he racked up from buying the Kings and living an extravagant lifestyle he couldn't afford. Things came crashing down in 1993 when McNall was not making his debt payments and started to miss payroll for the team. McNall was then caught for committing multiple accounts of fraud where he stole over $200 million from banks in loans for over 10 years. By 1995, the Kings were forced into bankruptcy, and that is when Anschutz found his opportunity. But anyway, by March 1995, Anschutz would pull the plug on his deal with the Nuggets, and after they did not want to give him full ownership of their hockey team, the Denver Avalanche, Anschutz already saw a new method of building an arena from Liwiki's presentation. And because he knew that this was such a great opportunity, he sought out to apply this new method of creating arenas and needed a team to buy to make it happen. Instead of being one of those with land at the time, he took a page out of the book from both the Timberwolves and the Nuggets owners. He wanted to buy a team and use this team as leverage to get the opportunity to build the new arena. Anschutz would only have to wait a whole seven months later to get this opportunity after the Kings had filed for bankruptcy in 1995. Anschutz came in with a partner who specialized in developing large real estate in LA named Ed Roski, and they quickly bought the team and got it out of bankruptcy. Then, they used their ownership in the Kings and Rossi's connections to the city of L.A. to propose building a new arena in downtown L.A. that can change the city. Believe it or not, during this time period, the city of L.A. was actually desperate for a new arena. Unlike other cities, who thought developing an arena would be a waste of tax dollars that would ultimately be profitable for the owners and not the city, in the mid-90s, L.A. was looking for something to change its image. You have to understand what was going on in L.A. at this time. In 1992, the L.A. riots brought destruction to the city after the LAPD officers were acquitted for the beating of Rodney King. This caused a six-day tragedy with 63 people dying and multiple areas in L.A. left destroyed. Then only a few years later, with the LAPD already having a bad reputation for disproportionately being against African Americans, would arrest O.J. Simpson and trial him for murder of his ex-wife and her partner in what would become the most-watched trial in history. The LAPD and the city of LA in general were already viewed in a negative light by African Americans for what they did to Rodney King, and now with OJ Simpson being investigated for murder, it brought even more negative light towards the city. Downtown LA at this time was also a place that many people who lived in LA would avoid because of the crime in the city. The mayor of LA at this time needed to change the city in a positive way so that there would be less damage, more unity, and less crime. They needed something to revive the city. Mayor Riordan hired Steve Sabaroff to be his consultant on business opportunities. And Sabaroff identified that the unused land next to the convention center would be the perfect area to build a new arena. So just to show you guys, Anschutz would end up building an arena in the second biggest city in the United States without much convincing. The mayor and his staff used the arena as a way to start a new chapter in downtown LA that brought positivity. Mayor Riordan talks about how the Staples Center saved the city in his book, saying, Once the doors of the Staples Center opened, downtown Los Angeles became a wildly popular venue for sports and entertainment. The arena is unlike any other. Striking in its architectural design and function, Staples Center is one of the finest modern arenas in the nation. 
It is the pride of all Angelinos and considered a cornerstone of the downtown revival. So Anschutz ultimately got what he wanted, but in a bigger deal than the one he did in Denver. He bought the LA Kings and turned it into the Staples Center with land being provided by the city of LA. He originally partnered with Roski because he wanted Roski to be the guy to use his development background to copy the model that Lidewiki created. But after seeing how forth-putting the city was in making the arena happen, Roski would later help less with actually putting the whole thing together and more with the development of the arena. Anschutz would recruit Lidewiki after he quit the Nuggets and he would lead the charge in getting the arena built by selling off portions before construction. Here are the deals that he did to get the Staples Center up and running. He sold the naming rights to Staples for 20 years for $116 million. He sold off parts of the seating to Bank of America. He sold sponsorships for different luxury suites. He sold 40% of the Staples Center to Fox so they could exclusively have broadcasting rights. He sold a minority interest in the Staples Center to Jerry Buss for a third of the Lakers. By the time the Staples Center would be unveiled in 1999, Anschutz would have owned his share in the arena for no money down. Just like he did with Southern Pacific, he used his equity in the Kings to parlay into ownership of the Staples Center and a third of the Lakers. But Anschutz was not done. While others around him saw how great the deal was, Anschutz again was aggressive. And notice that arenas are a great asset to own, and because of Liwaki's methods, he can now consolidate as being one of the only owners of arenas across the nation and across the world. Anschutz and Liwaki started AEG which is the Anschutz Entertainment Group, off the back of the Staples Center deal. But Anschutz saw that the even bigger play was to own a vertically integrated entertainment business that would own the arena and the content. The common trick they used was to buy teams in leagues that were not too expensive and leverage their ownership to then open new arenas. Once they owned the arena, they would now use it as its own business and would get acts in to perform concerts and other sporting events. They realized that by owning multiple venues, they could then buy out concert promotions and, and instead of promoters needing to secure venues themselves, AEG can now offer a streamlined service that books the act in all their arenas for world tours. They pay the artists up front and have the dates finalized in all their arenas. AEG then sells the tickets and pockets the profits from renting out all their arenas for all their shows. To do this, Liwiki would make two more acquisitions of small concert promotions. Concerts West Limited, which was ran by John Meglin, who promoted such acts as the Dixie Chicks, the Eagles, and Britney Spears. And a second one, which we will now all know today, called Golden Voice, which is a California-based concert promoter and developed a highly regarded new concert festival at this time called Coachella. Coachella started off as a festival after Pearl Jam would do a concert in Indio, in protest to the fees Ticketmaster charged their fans. They launched the festival with a stacked lineup in 1999, with headliners being Beck, Tool, and Rage Against the Machine. While critics lauded the festival, naming it the Festival of the Year, Golden Voice went on to lose almost a million dollars from the first Coachella and would actually shut it down. Anschutz and Liwiki bought the company in 2000 and would give them the resources to continue Coachella until it worked out. It took five years until Coachella started breaking even as a business in 2005 and then would gross $115 million over two weekends with over 250,000 people attending 12 years later in 2017. AEG and Anschutz more specifically was the pioneer behind making Coachella the big festival it is today.
AEG would become a conglomerate of entertainment assets that created a flywheel for the company. This reminds me of an early Disney flywheel chart that Walt Disney made to show how each asset they own contributed some value to another. I'm going to link it below in the show notes so you guys could get a picture. But essentially, Anschutz saw this early on. By owning arenas and the content, he unlocked all sorts of value for artists and performers and entertainment. The same methods Liwiki used to cross-promote sponsorships in their arenas, he would now use for these world tours. Now, instead of selling season tickets for the Lakers, he sold companies packages that included all events in their arenas. Instead of having artists hire promotion companies to pitch different venues to do concerts in, AEG made it more efficient by owning the whole world tour and pitching it to the artists instead. In under 20 years, AEG would become one of the biggest entertainment promoters in the world. In 2012, Anschutz wanted to cash in on his investment in the company and put it up for sale after failing to get a stadium built in LA to bring football back to the city. At the time, Forbes valued AEG at around $8 to $10 billion, making it a majority of Anschutz's net worth. The breakdown of the asset values went as follows. The venues were worth $4.8 billion to $6 billion. Team ownership, including the Lakers stick, LA Kings, and other MLS teams, were now worth $2 billion to $5 billion. And then ticketing and real estate development for their new arenas totaled to $1.2 billion to $1.5 billion. But Anschutz actually took his deal off the table and only recently sold off 27% of the Lakers to the owners of the Dodgers. And just for that stake alone, he reaped $1.4 billion, making this a grand slam, not even a home run for this type of investment. Now let's do some analysis to see why and how Anschutz did this deal. There's a great saying by a legendary investor named Michael Platt, where he says, markets are just positions. And this saying is something I'm just starting to appreciate just by the level of simplicity of what he said. If you are long a certain asset, you express it by buying it, and vice versa if short. What you are doing is positioning yourself to profit off the investment should things change in your favor? Now, I know this is sounding like the most basic thing ever. The reason why I bring up this statement is reminiscent of the way Philip Anschutz liked to invest. His investments were just ways to get great positions. This is reminiscent of Richard Rainwater as well. Going back to Anschutz's first big oil deal, he bought a ranch that Union Pacific had owned, and this ranch was just that. It was just a ranch. But the odds of the investment going out of favor were slim if he had kept the ranch operating the way it was. The reason he was long this asset, however, had nothing to do with the ranch. It had everything to do with standard oil drilling for oil in this area and coming up short. He basically bought a ranch with optionality that it may have oil. But remember, he had this idea from doing it previously on other acres of land that Phillips ended up buying off of him after he started to drill in those acres. By creatively finding value in assets that are underpriced, Anschutz basically picked up free options and would parlay them to much more valuable assets. So again, this is all about positioning. He wanted to be part of assets that had a great position should things work out well. He did this with railroads as well, just like to show you guys the point. He picked up a small, profitable railroad in Denver for $90 million, the Rio Grande, to then use it as leverage to own an even bigger railroad later on. Again, it gave him optionality to buy Southern Pacific. 
he bought the bigger railroad and knew it had other real estate that he could then sell at a profit. Anschutz intended to keep the railway alive, although it was struggling because he knew it was vital infrastructure that can actually be profitable if you could bring it back to running efficiently. He finds the man to do it, but again, what makes this deal go from a home run to a grand slam is the hidden assets he now finds within this railroad. The first thing he finds is a smaller subsidiary of Southern Pacific that was installing fiber optic lines by the railways for companies like WorldCom. He sees this new profitable venture and uses his positioning of owning all its land to then building fiber optic lines for itself. This then becomes the biggest investment in the 90s for him, called Quest. Another unintended business he sees comes from Liwiki's pitch to him when he worked for the Nuggets. And why did he see this pitch? Because he was selling off the land that Southern Pacific owned to make the debt payments. So if it wasn't for him doing this deal of buying Southern Pacific, he would not see these hidden opportunities that he didn't even know about just by getting the position to hear out what other people were doing with the land. So now notice, he sold the land for Southern Pacific to pay off the debt that he used to purchase the company, but for the AEG deals, on the other hand, he did not actually use any of Southern Pacific's land. Because remember, he learned from Liwiki that he didn't need to. The asset that he arbitrages to get into the lucrative arena business is a distressed hockey team in LA due to some crook named Bruce McNaugh. He used his ownership to now own the Staples Center. But again, going back to positioning, he sees something that no one else does in the entertainment space. Jerry Buss was not brought up in the sports industry. He was a real estate investor first. Same thing with his partner, Ed Roski. But neither one of them had the foresight to actually see that the key asset here was owning the arenas. Anschutz quickly uses positioning and hired the guy who would pioneer the whole industry, Tim Liwicki. He consolidated quickly and ended up owning arenas all around the world and would use Liwicki's genius business model of pre-selling sponsors to arenas to profitably grow while still being aggressive. This brings me to my next reason why Anschutz was so successful in this deal. He was a generalist. In the first Anschutz episode, I said how he liked to own diverse assets in different industries after he successfully sold his first oil deal. I don't think Anschutz would be able to take advantage of these hidden opportunities without his investments in different industries. It was his knowledge in real estate that took advantage of the railroad deals. It was his upbringing in oil that taught him how to aggressively pursue deals once you see something that works. He ultimately had a broader latticework of ideas in his head where he can now connect dots others were not even seeing. Let's dig deeper to find out how he did this with AEG. Jerry Buss and other sports owners viewed the team as the only asset and, and mainly focused on making the team better as their means to making money. Bruce McNall, the owner of the Kings before Anschutz, exemplified this when he brought Wayne Gretzky. But Anschutz noticed that this was only part of the picture. He also owned the Kings but viewed the more important asset being the arena. The Kings only played 41 games in the arena, and he convinced the Lakers and Clippers to come in too. But that is now another 80 more games in that arena that's leased out. By focusing on the arena business, he now bought other promoters to fill the arena with concerts, making the Staples Center one of the highest grossing venues in the United States. He saw that the much bigger business was the arenas, and just like how he used the trick of buying ranches to find oil, he would buy small sports teams again and again 
to continue growing his arena empire. He notoriously bought six of the 10 first MLS teams and kept the league alive so he could build more arenas like the Dignity Health Sports Park for LA Galaxy. But again, these sports teams were just smaller investments that could give him the positioning to own the very profitable arena that the city would give him land to build on. So then he parlays this even further. Now that he had ownership of all these arenas through buying sports teams, he used his arenas to be a big player in the promotion space. His competitive advantage that he had over his competitor at the time, SFX, was that he had ownership across the globe in the world's best arenas. He used this to take over the promotions business and would later offer artists money up front for world tours and would rake in profits of ticket sales themselves. If he was not a generalist and had a focus on sports or on real estate like his counterparties, he would not be able to easily assess the better businesses that his assets can end up being. Being a generalist made him creative in this way. And that is why he was so successful in his style. To find a hidden asset, you need to be able to understand different industries to truly know that the asset is valuable. He did it with oil, then railroads, then telecom, and now sports arenas. This now brings us to our next case study where he will do the same exact trick again when he creates the nation's biggest theater chain, Regal Entertainment. The background needed for the Regal deal takes us back to the 90s. Three separate theater chains, United Artists, Edwards, and Regal Cinemas were all expanding trying to take market share regionally across the nation. The private equity chains, KKR, and Hicks Muse decided to team up and merge their leverage buyouts in Regal Cinemas and Act 3 Cinemas into the world's biggest theater chain. In October 1997, KKR acquired Act 3 Cinemas for $323 million. A month later, in November 1997, Hicks Muse did a leverage buyout of the cinema chain United Artists for another $300 million. They then partnered and decided to merge both their theater chains and then acquire Regal Cinemas to become the largest theater chain in the nation by 1998. The reason why KKR and Hicks Muse made these purchases and want to be aggressive by consolidating other regional players was the realization of what regional theater chains were doing around them. Theater chains back then were trying to optimize their business model around selling as many tickets as possible. So they viewed their business equation as creating cinemas that have as many seats as possible. The more seats you have, the more tickets you could sell. So the industry aggressively went about cannibalizing itself and started to build newer theaters called quote-unquote multiplexes that had stadium seats and were more comfortable for the viewer. The problem was the owners of the cinemas did not understand that they already overbuilt their theaters from the beginning. In 1988, theaters were operating at only 15% capacity. They still pursued building these new theaters, and while they had hoped that demand would pick up with their new supply of seating, it actually got worse. By the time KKR and Hicks Muse would merge their assets in 1998, their theater chains were operating at 12% capacity. At the same time, the number of screens had risen by over 10,000 screens there was still a deep supply-demand mismatch. And with many of the theater chains taking out loans to build their new cinemas, they did not have the sales to support the debt payments. KKR and Hicks Muse would consolidate to leverage their negotiations with studios to get a better cut 
or mitigate costs by pooling resources together. But it was not enough because at the same time, the theater business was actually starting to get weaker. The economics was pretty simple back in those days. When a big movie came out, the theater chains would usually negotiate with the studio on the split they take from ticket sales. Usually the first six weeks, theater chains take 30%, while 70% went to the studios who made the movies. But thereafter, the splits flip, and the theater chains take 70% of the sale. So as long as the box office blockbusters could still be popular enough to last a few months, theater chains made a good deal of profit from selling tickets and other things like snacks. They made even more from keeping popular films in their chains than switching them out with newer movies. The problem was, though, studios decided to release a lot more movies during this time period. Movie releases would grow by 35% in 1998, forcing theater owners to replace their films with newer ones moviegoers wanted to see. This combination of overbuilding with the weakness of the business model ultimately forced KKR and Hicks Muse to lose their entire investment by filing for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy three years after making their big merger. So, simply said, it was not a good situation to invest in. I just gave many reasons why this is actually a really bad investment, but there was an oversupply of theaters, and the demand was actually slowing down. But they were not the only ones who would go under as well. During this time, the entire industry at this point was in distress. And it was because they were all chasing the same trend of building bigger and better theaters, and they did not realize that they already had oversupplied in the first place. So in 2001, with their entire theater industry in a bloodbath with no real interest, one man decides to invest and go right into it. And we all know who it is because we're making the episode about him. Anyway, it's crazy. The man who decides to invest is Philip Anschutz. But, and this is going to sound really repetitive. I know this episode probably is already really repetitive, but it's okay. This is just so we could understand the point. Anschutz really liked to be in terrible situations. He managed to escape bankruptcy multiple times in his career and decided to jump into the fire for this investment as well. During this time, Anschutz had someone working for him named Michael Bennett, who was now a senator in Colorado. He had Bennett look over buying Regal and Edward Cinemas to see if they were worth fixing. In Bennett's book, The Land of Flickering Lights, Bennett gives us a clue to how Anschutz had thought about this deal, saying, we did not trade debt. Phil Anschutz was only interested in making long-term investments. In general, we looked for well-run companies with terrible balance sheets. And it was important for us that once a company was in bankruptcy, we were able to get it out as fast as we reasonably could. A company in a long bankruptcy can be a wasting asset. In the end, we saved the companies by restructuring the $3 billion of debt the prior owners had borrowed into a manageable $450 million of debt. We created what was the largest movie exhibition company in the world, Regal Entertainment Group, and also built a new digital advertising business. Regal Cinemas was a balance sheet problem because of the massive amounts of debt they took on to build newer theaters. But as always, Anschutz decided to invest because the theaters had already been built by this point. Andrew started buying the banks out and then restructured the combined asset between Regal, United Artists, and Edwards into one company called Regal Entertainment Group. With the debt within reason and now $450 million from the $3 billion that they went under for, Andrew still had the problem that the economics of the theaters was weak, 
due to the higher velocity of big box office films being released. But as Bennett said in the last sentence, he kind of just mentioned it, but it was the most important part of this deal. The solution that Anschutz figured out was through advertising. One stat that stuck out in Anschutz's head was that moviegoers usually showed up in their seats 20 minutes before the movie started. He figured if you could use those 20 minutes to advertise future films or other things, he can fix the business model. But it wasn't going to be easy. But Phil Anschutz, knowing what we know, he pushed through anyway. And here's how he came up with his solution. In the 80s and 90s, theaters had only updated the seating. But the way films were broadcasted was still very archaic. So when they actually used to show the films, they had physical film that they would then attach to a projector to roll it out to show the film. Remember, at this time, Anschutz had a significant asset that was helping Americans embrace new technology called the quote-unquote internet through his telecom company called Quest. Anschutz, knowing that Quest could provide its service to these theater chains, decided to take out the old system and install a new system that digitizes the films and shows them through a computer. This would cut costs and streamline the ability to easily show films. But what does this have to do with advertising? Well, before, the, on the old system, you had to have physical rolls of film to even show a commercial. But now with a new digital system, Anschutz could effectively sell ad spots and show them openly by uploading it digitally. This became the simple fix and the industry's new business model. Instead of just being in the ticket-selling business, the theater chains were now in the advertising business. Through this new model, Anschutz went on to create a new digital format for film advertising to take advantage of now having studios be a customer through advertising on their own screens. He also started another business with the rival AMC theaters called National Cinemedia to show other things like sporting events and theaters. And because of these changes, Anschutz got to own one of the biggest theater chains in the nation and profit off dividends the company gave by being the biggest shareholder only within a year of making the asset public. In 2002, after a year of buying all three of the chains, he would take Regal Entertainment Group public. Just from his recent sale of the company in 2017 to Cinemark, he alone made a billion dollars, and that is after selling stock and taking dividends for over 16 years when it was public. This will conclude our case studies on Philip Anschutz, and now let's move on to some lessons I learned from studying Philip Anschutz. Philip Anschutz was a spectacular investor because of how well he took advantage of distressed opportunities. He became a self-made billionaire by owning industry-leading companies in oil, entertainment, railroads, and telecom, culminating in his net worth right now of $15 billion. He did this by aggressively owning big stakes in distressed companies, turning them around, and most importantly, finding new ways to make use of the assets that he just purchased. He self-described his own qualities of successful investing as, what, what did I teach you guys? Being aggressive and knowledgeable. And he did this in the beginning of his career by studying the pioneers of the West and then using that knowledge to then owning the businesses that they started. He learned to be aggressive after opportunistically buying oil leases from others that were scared of the liabilities from the oil fire that his well produced. He would then utilize his style to run headfirst into the railroad industry after buying the Rio Grande and then Southern Pacific when the industry was in a downturn. But by being aggressive again and creatively finding assets that were underutilized, he then used the excess lands the railroads had 
for two of his new businesses, starting the telecom company Quest and starting his entertainment behemoth AEG. His entrance into the railroad industry became the source of most of his net worth. He knew that the railroads had hidden assets through their land ownership and had bought the land from Union Pacific where he made his first billion in oil. But this time around, he was a lot more creative and instead of looking at the past to see what can be done, he looked at the future and noticed how many big telecom companies were building fiber optic lines on the railroad's land. He did this again. When selling the same land, he learned about the new way Tim Laiwiki developed arenas without bearing any of the risk up front. He then seized this opportunity hand in fist and began to buy up many up-and-coming sports teams around the world for the sole purpose of building arenas. He then used his international arena network to be a leading concert promoter and ended up buying Golden Voice to help with this effort. He was an early backer of Coachella and helped finance it until it became the biggest festival in the world. He used his insights from Quest to build a totally new solution to solving the oversupply of theater chains that were now about to be bankrupt. To cut costs, he thought about digitizing the projection of films and then pioneered a whole new business model by using this new technology to advertise on theater screens across the nation. Because of Anschutz, people like me and you cannot watch a movie on the time it actually says anymore. But I guess now we know why. If there's one main lesson we can learn from all of this, it is just how unpredictable investing can be. In the famous podcast that we all know, Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, Steve Mandel of Lone Pine said it best when he said, there are a lot of things, but one of the things we learned, or I've learned is, people can be unbelievably smart, but if they're linear thinkers, it will never work as an analyst. We are always dealing in shades of gray, probabilities. Philip Anschutz's career exemplifies this point. He jumped into situations where the odds were actually against him most times, but he really focused on the right tail and found ways to get those results time and time again. But a lot of his results really came down to his knowledge of the companies he dealt with. By understanding there was some hidden value, he knew that his margin of safety would be in fixing the distressed asset he bought. He owned a lot of different assets in different industries and was known to try and see what each deal can become. His margin of safety was by first fixing the asset and then creatively seeing what other assets the company has for him to exploit in other ways. In the railroads, for example, he spent the first 11 years mostly fixing the companies he bought so that he could effectively pay off the debt he used to buy them out. By doing that alone, he would have made a great return, which he did, which was like multiple billions when he sold it for $5.4 billion to Union Pacific. But the bigger opportunity came after he finally fixed the railroad where he noticed how quickly the telecom installation business of the company grew. In 1995, he did not sit by watching all the other big telecom players and instead used his land to build his own fiber optic network himself. He saw that he had an opportunity to be one of the biggest players instantly because he had the land to actually build out the lines while his competitors didn't. When Regal and other cinemas went under, he quickly got it out of bankruptcy in over a year because of his understanding he had from owning Quest. While they all went under for building out the seating of the cinema, he really focused on the movies that were projected and understood that if they could be digitized, he can now use the screen as a new business outside of just showing movies. By understanding how uncertain investing can be, Anschutz actually embraced it by getting into big opportunities that had potential to be profitable from spinning off hidden assets. Another lesson I learned that ties into the last lesson is something I like to call playing to win. 
Anschutz himself credits his upbringing in wildcatting to how he became so aggressive. I think it is counterintuitive that he learned to be aggressive in an industry where most of the time you're actually losing money. But after further understanding him, in industries like oil drilling, you kind of get used to losing and seeing it as nothing big over time. You learn that investing is less about being right and more about making money, to sort of paraphrase George Soros. When the outcome is already against you, it forces you to find a solution creatively or else you go bankrupt. Anschutz learned from wildcatting to diversify in other high-risk, high-payout investments, and more importantly, learned to stick with an investment to see the full outcome of it. Anschutz was very much a burn-the-boats type of person, and would not concede a lot of the deals he did, even if they were down, but would instead use the pressure of being in a bad situation to find a creative solution out of the problem. Most of the time, he would also go out swinging. And what I mean by this was that when he's in a bad situation, he would try to get more ownership of the assets in his investments so that if he did find a way out, he would get paid more. An example of this was when the MLS was on the brink of bankruptcy. Anschutz, Lamar Hunt of the Kansas City Chiefs, and Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots had a meeting to discuss what to do. While the other two were worried about losing money because they were both owners and some of the teams too, Anschutz boldly said he would buy another three teams to add on to the other three he already owned to keep the league alive. He tried to convince Hunt to buy another two teams with the one he already owned, where Anschutz said, Throughout my business career, I have frequently made investments that seemed counterintuitive at times, that seemed pretty desperate for the business involved. And those have been the ones that generally worked out best for me. And now, as we all know, the MLS has Messi, and the championship Messi now plays for is named after Philip Anschutz. So again, he jumped into these situations, and he would try to find a solution, and many times he did. His experience taught him to jump into these bad situations, but it also taught him that these situations could also be the most lucrative in his career. While Richard Rainwater, for example, would make small investments to learn, and then come up with a solution to attack, and then make the big deal, Andrews cared more about being in a big enough situation that could pan out with an even bigger result. Rainwater was a lot less risky, in my opinion, and did not have as many dire situations as Anschutz, but Anschutz did make it out a lot richer in the end. I just wanted to give you guys this comparison to show how playing the game totally differently could still yield successful results. For the last lesson I learned from Philip Anschutz was to really dig into the history of industries. Anschutz was not creating anything new. His study of the West led him to find opportunities that were explored many years before him. His multidisciplinary approach to studying the West allowed him to diversify his investing and learn how interconnected each industry actually was to one another. Just by understanding this concept more than his counterparties, it really gave him an edge to see things that others weren't. In a world that's dominated now by AI and people giving you their analysis, I think there's a special value in digging through the past to see how it unraveled to the present yourself. Charlie Munger is the biggest proponent to this, and that is why investors like him and Anschutz became so successful. By learning the history of different businesses and industries, you too can find an edge in understanding how an industry evolved and what hidden assets there may be in an industry you are part of. So put down the phone, pick up a book, and see what opportunities are out there for you. And with this... I conclude our series on Philip Anschutz. I had a lot of fun doing this episode and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. I hope to see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>